following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Garnishing your ham with pineapple? Pair it with a delicious Chardonnay to make their taste buds swirl. Deviled eggs are even better when paired with a light, dry wine like a bubbly Prosecco or a Pinot Grigio. For me, nothing beats recommending a great wine. And with such an extensive selection, I can help you find the perfect one in your budget. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine & More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! My name is Matt Perez. My name is Satchel Drakes. And this is Overworld, where we try to be curious, fail at being smart, and talk about video games at the intersection of art, society, and other stuff. Hey, Satchel. Hey, Matt. What's going on, man? I'm doing all right. Um, I uh, spent most of my time this past weekend working on a new uh, case study video. Um, Put it out on YouTube and um, just been kind of periodically in between like real life work stuff checking through comments and responses and just seeing how people feel about it because it's been a long time yeah it feels like an event when it happens and i'm sure like people are like oh there's another one (laughs) yeah i don't know where i mean yeah i'm sure i'm sure you understand what it's like like um it's just always good kind of get kind of seeing where people land with things because you're never Mm -hmm. really sure how you feel about what you put together until um, yeah. Until you get all the feedback. It's definitely yeah. Um I've put out some videos where like they like not blew up, but like they did well on, on like the main uh subreddits for gaming and it's just like cool to see like oh this is really great. I'm like thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh Yeah. It's also I uh <laughs> I haven't put out a video in a while, so I I periodically like today I even got some comments and uh it's so funny seeing like uh Make great content, and then you disappear. I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and I also get, like, ones that are, like, they sound worried, and I'm, I feel bad because they're like, hey, man, I know this isn't your life, but just wanted to make sure you're all right. I'm like, oh, I'm not dead. It's cool. Like, we're Dude, fine. yeah, <laughs> I get it. <laughs> I totally get it. I definitely it's like, yeah, I'm here just doing other stuff. Still love video games. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I'll be back, I'm sure. But it's like, yeah, yeah. it's one of those things where uh, – even though, like, my channel, like, I'm, I'm sure you get it more, but, like, my channel is not super big, but, like, you still have, like, these people that really want to see your content and, like, that kind of interaction and, like, that community is, it's crazy. Like, it's nuts. I don't know. It, it feels different, you know? Yeah, it definitely feels like a culture. Like, it feels like a, uh, it feels like the culture around it sort of has this particular voice. I mean, obviously, it's, like, a group, uh, a rather large group of like individuals, sort of reacting um, to whatever sort of out there. But it definitely is a cool. I don't know. I guess I, I guess it's it's like a cool thing. It's a cool kind of place for conversation. Was this like to put something out there and it causes some conversation? That's weird too. Like, and it happens to like it's not a simple like oh we put something out and move on it feels like it's a living thing when you put it out and it's uh i definitely have spent uh a good way too many hours just like if i put something new something new out just seeing how the these different little communities react to it which is probably just my ego i don't know (laughs) well sometimes it's also just like interest or wanting to find somebody else who 
connects with you or connects with some nuanced thing that you enjoy. Like there's there's nothing I love more than putting together a script that's about this game that I love and then putting it out into the world and including intentionally including some small detail that I really, really loved and finding somebody else who totally saw that same thing. I don't know, it makes the world feel smaller in a in a kind of way. Yeah. Well, um, I guess that's one of the more positives of I don't know, I guess being around such an enthusiastic group of folks. Yeah, especially, like, I feel like you found a lot of success with your content where it is um, – it's hitting, like, a, a different niche than than a lot of diff- other um, uh, creators. And to see you get success from that, I'm like, wow, he's going for these type of topics and these ideas. And there's definitely, like, an audience that are totally fervent and, like, want to see more of it, you know? That's cool. Mm. So we had a conversation with Gerard Khalil, um, who is also a content creator, one on a much larger scale than either of us. Um, he's he's pretty much creeping up to about a million subscribers, um, and he has one of the most intensive, admittedly self-inflicted tasks of 100% completing a video game every week. Um, so he 100% has the respect and the attention of the gaming community. Uh, but on top of that is just a consistent and phenomenal internet creator as well. Um, Cause he's, you know, he's obviously putting together these scripts with his team and, and cutting and editing and, and, and putting it up there on a regular basis, multiple videos every week uh, covering old and new games. Uh, so we, we're going to talk with him and uh, we're going to kind of talk about this fandom and how, user reaction how audience and customer reaction uh, plays into both the world of video games and also the world of enthusiast press around it but first a quick break and taking a moment to thank our sponsors amica insurance rocket mortgage and veridesk you'll hear more about these companies later in the show okay so today we have gerard khalil founder of that one video gamer entertainment host of the popular youtube show the completionist a show on a youtube channel also called that one video gamer creeping on about one million subscribers um he's also one fourth of the boy band big bad bosses thank you so much for joining us how's it going it's going great thank you for having me here's what i'm curious to know could, could you just tell us a little bit about what you do the the way i sort of have you categorized is the busiest nerd on the internet <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm, I am very, very busy. Um, I essentially, I created a prison for myself about seven years ago. Uh, I, I graduated from college with two degrees, one in theater and one in film. And when I left school, I was in a zone of, oh, I have no future. And everyone I'm trying to get a job with is not hiring in the industries that I'm looking for. And so... I was working at Best Buy at the time, and I I just kind of had this, you know what, I'm going to shoot for the stars and try this YouTube thing back in 2011 when there was not even a partner program almost, and I came up with an idea for a show called The Completionist, and the idea was man versus game, one game a week, uh, will he or won't he complete it, and... I did my first episode, it went somewhat viral, and my whole life changed, and I've kept to the mantra of doing one game a week while somehow creating other properties that have somehow still managed to be around in in 2018, so uh, 
amongst all my different properties, I'm I'm still completing a game a week, which is pretty crazy. Yeah, it's nuts. <laughs> yeah, when when you say complete, like, so do you mean like just kind of run through the story, or do you, you mean like 100? percent Yeah. Oh, 100 percent of everything. I I look at every single uh, side quest, every single character. I talk about the depth, the writing, uh, any behind the scenes trivia. Anything that I can find about the game that uh, is either common knowledge or something you didn't really know based on on me doing research or based on me going through the experience of completing the game. At the end of the day, this is a review show, but I think what makes it very different and very unique is the fact that uh, I did my homework. And so at the end of this massive journey of me critiquing this game for all of its faults, I kind of go, hey, here's my homework teacher. I did it. So that kind of gives me the authority as to whether or not uh, I can have these opinions or formulate what I think is true. Our engineer, Kieran, looks shocked. (laughs) 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 That's so wild. And it's obviously, I mean, that consistency is no joke. I imagine you, how many many vacations do you take a year? (laughs) Uh, In my seven years, I have taken one two-month vacation. (laughs) That's nuts. (laughs) (laughs) that is wild (laughs) who said millennials were lazy okay so um i'm just trying to save up a lot of money for avocado toast you guys i just really that's right come on it's expensive it's very expensive (laughs) and and for the record you um you're getting a house you have both avocado toast and a house I I am trying on to the buy, way, I'm, developing. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm on the way with the house. I'm I'm trying to find one right now. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, so obviously you've 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 garnered quite a following doing what you do, especially doing it as consistently as you do. I mean, I can't think of many programs of any kind that don't take some kind of break. You know what I mean? Um, if you could describe in one word the fandom around video games, what would it be? And could you, like, unpack that? Oh, man. Whew. Let's open the floodgates, <laughs> shall we? Um, if I had to s- describe the fandom of video games in one word, I would say misjudged. Um, there's there's so much of this, like, current outrage culture happening, I feel like, in especially this year with... Um, you know, if, if a developer messes up or if a company messes up or if an auteur messes up or even, you know, a personality like myself messes up, there's kind of like this this vicious attack or controversy. But at the end of the day, and, and people who don't understand, who are looking in, go, oh my god, gamers have this weird, aggressive approach to video games. And at the end of the day, I think that's like the least true thing ever. I think all Almost all gamers out there love what they love. They're passionate about the games they want to play. They love talking about the games that they want to play. And in all cases, there just happen to be some bad eggs that end up kind of speaking for the total populace. And there's a large, silent majority of gamers that love video games, surprise, surprise. And they love talking about them. They love sharing their passions. They love making videos. They love making art. There's so many expressive ways out there that people are are sharing with their passions about video games that kind of get brushed aside or kind of forgotten about, and everyone just focuses on on what's clickable, what's trending, what the current conversation is, instead of kind of taking a step back and going, wow, this is a great community that is focused on wanting better things and appreciating the things that they have. Mm. 
I definitely like. I guess I the way I view it is always like um, gaming. The community itself really lives and breathes online, and I guess that's where where you have like these like gaming dominates YouTube, which is a humongous like search engine platform, and like it dominates Reddit and things like that. So there's definitely like that conversation is really happening online and all that creation is also happening online. So it's like that mix of like, yeah, you're definitely going to hear some amplified voices, but you also have like creators that are making like really cool content because they're so enthused about video games. I think what makes content creators relatable and and streamers and and personalities in the gaming space is the fact that uh, everyone can reminisce to the time that they beat Mario World. Everyone can reminisce to the time that they beat Sonic with all the Chaos Emeralds. There's there's this kind of um, unspoken word, right? Everyone knows the Konami code. Everyone knows to <laughs> blow on a cartridge even though you shouldn't. There's this kind of um, camaraderie in that and, and that, that shared interest that people instantly gravitate to because, um, you know... Video games when I when I was younger, and I'm sure it was the same for you guys. Uh, video games were not the thing to talk about at the, at the schoolyard um, in, in in the early days until Pokemon came out. Pokemon normalized having your Game Boy Color with you uh, in in the fourth and fifth grade, and and the social aspect of gaming has has become the, the forefront of of how we ingest our content. Yeah, I remember my principal telling me I can't bring my Pokemon games to school. Uh, <laughs> Do you so know what I found out? There was a nationwide it – wasn't, it wasn't nationwide in a sense of legislation, but it was labeled probably because of how popular it was, like a nationwide Pokemon card ban. My school was a part of it, but I didn't realize that it was a part of this behind-the-scenes like agreement that having Pokemon cards in school was like – I don't know, this crazy, dangerous thing. Well, back, back in the day, there was this kind of scare of, like, video games cause violence, right? You know, that's that was that yeah. huge thing about Duke, Duke Nukem and Doom. and But then at the end of the day, people were up in arms about you catching a cute little Pokemon. Like, that was the thing right. that made everyone go, stop it! <laughs> Knock it off! <laughs> right. You make them battle until they fall asleep. I don't know. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> But no, I totally get that where, um, I don't know, I totally remember, you know, getting this big game that everyone got and and everyone, like, meets up uh, to talk about it. And everyone has their own experience, and I definitely think that's probably part of it, where we engage with it differently uh, and, like, our, we bring our stories with each other, and that probably fuels that, like, we need, we should talk about this, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. It, Absolutely. It, and, I, and I think it's really cool that you kind of come at it from an angle. To be honest, I wasn't even expecting that answer um, just because it's so accessible to kind of start off by talking about the to- the toxicity of really any community, I guess, right? Because uh, the vocal minority tends to err towards negative. It tends to create the most uh, like online engagement on social networks and things like that. Um, I think that misunderstood is like a super fair statement. And I, I guess to, to help kind of humanize that perspective, um, I know that – so you're you're in partnership with quite a few different um, like game companies, whether on the software or the hardware end, yeah? Uh, not, not in like a they pay me money uh, partnership. Right, right, right. No, but not more, at all. But I, I guess more... my, I use partnership loosely, like meaning in talks with like – 
Yeah, I, I would say I'm I have a very close relationship with uh with a lot of uh third party indie developers as well as uh the big Nintendo. Uh, I have a very close relationship with them and uh back in about 2012 when I first started blowing up, they uh I I was really I I I had a very small YouTube channel at the time and uh they the PR firm that was working with them at the time, they kind of gave me an opportunity to to make some cool content, and uh, I competed in this, like, Wii U film school challenge, and uh, I essentially made a really nostalgic, heartwarming uh, Nintendo commercial, and uh, the Nintendo reached out to me and was like, we don't know who you are or what you're doing, but your content is resonating with how we view our company, and uh, it kind of snowballed into this uh, really wonderful and trusting relationship um, and, and as a kid, all I ever wanted to do was work with Nintendo. And so I, that's definitely something on my bucket list that I've checked off is that I have a working relationship with Nintendo. Um, and not like in a, in a very super close way where, you know, I'm going to every single event, but, uh, I, I've been given these cool opportunities that no one else really has, you know, the opportunity to talk to Miyamoto about Star Fox and Zelda and to be one of the first people ever to complete or own a Switch and, and and things like that, and the, it, as the years go on, the relationship just gets more um, um, more in depth with with regards to the the challenges and the, and the things, and and they're always there for me, which is crazy. They're always whenever anything happens in my world or or uh, or in in my friend's world or whatever, they I always hear from Nintendo somewhere in the company. It's like, hey, you know, keep up the great work. We're we're proud of you, and if we can help you, let us know. That is that's tremendous. Um... I guess going going on with that, and obviously not including Nintendo or any of the companies that you're with, what I'm sort of curious to know is where do you think in some ways, and by no means are these imperfections, but these are just sort of like what happens when you go from the filter from corporation to individual. Um, being in the enthusiast press, you're in a very unique position where you get to hear clearly the desires of uh, like companies to connect with their... Uh, their customers, the people that they're kind of making, building stories for. And then you also get to hear clearly people on the ground floor who are looking for something interesting and engaging and innovative from companies that have the funding and the teams to do that. Uh, where do you often feel there's like miscommunication? Like where do you feel like sometimes there's misconstruing on either side? What's What are sort of some of the, the, the loudest things for you? Oh, man, that's a tough question. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I bring it, boy. I bring it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say what company I feel does it right and how other companies in the space are starting to view that and go, that's what we need. Um, mm. The uh, Sonic the Hedgehog Twitter. I, I certainly believe... <laughs> I certainly Good. believe that, that the Sonic the Hedgehog Twitter um, is what has saved Sonic in the past few years. Uh, from a financial perspective, from a from a PR perspective, uh, the gentleman running that that Twitter um, has single handedly brought Sonic to the forefront again with Sonic Mania, and and despite everything around it that's weird and creepy in terms of of, of newer and older games, uh, there's always a constant buzz going on with Sonic and social media now, to the point True. where you have things like Wendy's and Arby's kind of doing these massive clack, uh, clapbacks at fans or creating art based off their products. And I think um, 
it's kind of taking the blend of what YouTube is with personality and, and drive and passion and mixing it with the shooting for the stars corporate appeal of an icon like Mario or Sonic or Zelda. And I think that's the biggest disconnect is that at the end of the day, the people who are running the companies that are creating these large properties are fans. And we tend to forget that as a consumer and we just assume, oh man, there goes that company again trying to make that money. And in some cases, it's blatantly obvious when that company is massively not invested in what they're working on in regards to the battlefront of what they're recently ingesting and creating from several different perspectives just to get that payback of a paycheck. That was three references that will go over everyone's head. Um, <laughs> and uh, there's obviously a massive disconnect in that regards, but um, the simple thing these companies need to do is just listen. The fans are always saying what they want. They're always saying what they're happy with. You know, that's why indie developers are now like the new rock stars. Um, that's why Kickstarter makes it a viable platform for games you've never heard of or musicians you've never heard of to rise and create fandoms just out of their own genuine passion and talent. And the companies that are seeing this are are learning more and more about the space and they're trying to adapt in a way where there's not so much corporate red tape, but they're more embracing what the current generation is wanting from in regards to content ingestion. Yeah. And I think that's something that, 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 uh, us millennials definitely, uh, are trying to, <laughs> to enforce amongst each other, because I think that's, that's huge. You know, we all, we all want to see the good and passion of what we're creating and bringing to the table and, uh, you know, I, I think it's something that we all just want and the companies are, are learning more and more about that every day. Yeah. yeah. I definitely noticed that yeah. with, uh, um, cause I played a lot of League of Legends, um, definitely like Riot, uh, interacts with their community and I think they get them and they've sustained that, like that player base, you know, which is crazy. And I mean, I see the same thing with, uh, you know, people that are creating content on YouTube. Like, I think that if there's a barrier between, like, in another medium, if there's a barrier between fans and creators, it's definitely uh, a little bit more dissolved in gaming, I would say. I don't know how you feel about that, but that's how, like, I, I view it. I, I totally agree. I, I think there's, there, there is an interactive medium uh, when regards to, to gaming. Um, whether it be skill or co-op experience, or, uh, you know, uh, being the best in a room of 100 people. There's there's kind of this this nostalgic, there's this competitive, there's a creative edge that gamers um, are, are really kind of going towards a lot. And something I... I uh, I'm probably going to need a lot of crap for saying this, excuse my language, but um, I kind of think that the word gamer uh, is almost irrelevant nowadays. In fact, when everyone says, hey, you're a gamer, or, and that's ironic because my brand is that one video gamer, <laughs> uh, I I have this massive, like, Spider-Sense cringe moment happen because um, that, that, game, that word no longer means anything. Mm-hmm. Saying you're a gamer is just like saying I watch movies. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And yeah. <clears throat> it's like, hey, I eat sandwiches. Like, great. So, so I eat food, too. What are you, what are you trying to do here? You want, like, it doesn't matter. Gaming is... A culture, it's a way of life. 
it's it's not like the nerd sitting in the basement anymore that that stereotype has doesn't exist mm-hmm. um and i i really th- i think that's like something that gamers i hate saying that gamers <laughs> hate they hate being pandered to and <laughs> it's it's so easy for a larger company who has no idea what's going on in the gaming space who goes, I want to be in with the gamers. Give them all of the energy drinks that will give them all of the EXP buffs for the weekend. Like, there's clearly a massive disconnect there that um, definitely, at least for me, just gives me the wrong vibes across the board. And we'll be right back after this quick break. Support for the Forbes Overworld podcast comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, the mortgage company that decided to ask why. Why can't clients get approved in minutes rather than weeks? Why can't they make adjustments to their rate and term in real time? And why can't there be a client-focused technological mortgage revolution? Quicken Loans answered all these questions and more with Rocket Mortgage. Rocket Mortgage gives you the confidence you need when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. Whether you're looking to buy your first home or your tenth, with Rocket Mortgage you get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Apply simply, understand fully, mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash Forbes. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. I feel like most people play video games. Like, it's just a normal thing now. It's not a... Like, it's like, oh yeah, you totally have like a, a few games on your phone, or oh, you want to play Mario Kart? Yeah. Of course you do. It's fun. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> well, it's, especially when you start adding celebrity endorsements that aren't really endorsements. You know, like if you're if you're on Twitter and you see like, uh, you know, Flynn from the Stranger Kid, Stranger Things, he's like talking about Nintendo Switch, and mil- suddenly millions of kids out there are like, "Yo, I have a Nintendo Switch," and the dude from Stranger Things has a Nintendo Switch. That's normal. That's cool. That's mm-hmm. hip. That's a thing. That's just accepted now um whereas you know in the early days they had to pay paul rudd to star in a commercial for nintendo like they had very to, true they, had, they had to pay like, beyonce to play the nintendo ds <laughs> which is actually a thing <laughs> yeah the the pink the pink ds with nintendogs <laughs> yeah <laughs> we're not like seeing uh you know what's it's one of those uh i don't know it's stuck in my mind for some reason but seeing uh anytime i see chrissy teigen uh, tweet about like Animal Crossing or something like, oh that's oh cool. Oh my gosh, it's my that's favorite cool. thing. <laughs> my favorite thing. Like, <laughs> the, and it, it funny, is it is super normalized in that way. I love it. I don't. I don't even know who she is. I know nothing about her brand. I know nothing about anything. All I know is that the internet blows up for about six hours anytime she tweets anything <laughs> about video games <laughs> and. <laughs> My Twitter feed—it's it's the most confusing Twitter feed I've ever had, and I'm—I'm I'm always like, I think I need to—I either need to learn everything or just walk away because I—I never quite get the answers I'm looking for. It's just like the perfect intersection of two things that you don't think for people in podcast land. Chrissy Teigen, for one, she—she is—she's uh, the host of what's that lip sync show with lip-sync the celebrities battle? that lip sync? Um, is it just called oh. lip sync battle. Lip Sync Battle. Battle. There you go. Lip Sync Battle. And then she's also married to uh, John Legend. Oh. And and she also just comes out of the blue with Animal Crossing fandom and (laughs) nice 
spicy memes of all sorts. <laughs> it's great. I love it. She, um, I think she was like, oh, I couldn't get into Stardew Valley. And everyone's like, oh, I tried again. And it's like, uh, yeah, there's definitely that uh, right. the interaction <laughs> with the fans and everything. It's cool. <laughs> it's beautiful. Um, you know what I'm kind of curious to know about? Um, is there any way in which, like, how would you describe the differences between fandoms around particular games that obviously you see you see on Twitter or wherever and fandom fandoms around um what you do like YouTubers the whole kind of like YouTube world I guess enthusiast press stuff um what is sort of experiencing all of that like you can really start anywhere I feel like that's such a huge question like yeah, so welcome to the hour and a half podcast about what <laughs> what what the YouTube is. Um, you know, it's interesting because the YouTube fandom, uh, the YouTube economy, if you will, because uh, I won't say community because YouTube is not a community. That that's a very mis misconstrued <laughs> statement about YouTube. It is not a community. Amazing starting point. Uh, yeah, it is. It is an economy. Um, there is definitely. I wish you could start like a Wall Street Journal or a Wall Street uh, like wa- like uh, opening and closing situation with with YouTube in terms of of like open in the mornings and the evenings because that's essentially how you make it big on YouTube. Uh, today we're talking about Tide Pods. Tide Pods are in. Everyone, Tide Pod videos. Go go Tide Pods. No, what's that? Tide Pods down. Sell Tide Pod. No one make videos on Tide Pods anymore. Get rid of Tide Pods. Dabbing, dabbing, everyone's in for oh, dabbing, yeah. dabbing, great. Like, it's, it's, <laughs> that's kind of like the ecosystem of popularity on YouTube. Um, it's really good. But that wasn't, that wasn't the case when I started. That wasn't what, um, really got me interested in YouTube. What got me interested in YouTube was the idea that I can share a story, I can share a personal, uh, memory of mine or, <clears throat> Uh, a special moment in my life in regards to video games, a triumphing aspect, or I can show or go through a a trial and tribulation in front of people, and there was an interest for that. In my eyes, there's two types of YouTubers. You have um, the YouTubers that blow up instantly overnight, who are the ones that are shaking up how YouTube does their business and how people ingest their content, and creating uh, almost scary levels of Beatlemania, if you will. Um... You know the Jake, the Jakes and Logans of the world, and uh, I know everyone's freaking out to to those guys recently. But uh, without really uh, ruffling anyone's feathers, there have been people like Jake and Logan Paul for years, way before these brothers came. Oh, along. I believe that. I way believe that. Yeah. Yeah. It's every every eighteen to to thirty six months. There's there is a new set of um. I, I'm also, I'll say this in quotes. Trending YouTuber that shows up. And learns how the algorithm works and manipulates it in a way where it forces YouTube to then shift their their economic standing with their their consumers and their uh, providers. And then you have the other YouTuber, which is where I kind of uh, fall into, which I, I I kind of say the little engine that could YouTuber. And it's mm. the 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 little YouTuber who started out from nothing with a couple thousand subscribers, maybe if they're lucky, 
And the idea was, and it still is, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. If I keep going, I keep creating this thing, I'm just going to snowball and snowball and snowball and grow this community and then grow the business and then get cool opportunities. And this is something that to me has always been so much more fruitful uh, because the audience that's there, whether it be small, is a rabid one. I would rather sell out a room with 30 people of the most massive completionist fans than have an, than have an auditorium of that seats a thousand and uh, you know a couple hundred people show up um, because there's this certain aspect of of direct communication when fans see you when you go to a convention and they see your face and they 100%. light up like it like it's Christmas and they don't yeah. know how to react they don't know how to respond they treat you as someone who they've been following for years and there's this almost unspoken intimate connection between content creator and fan and that passion that drive that that connection is something that is so much it's almost impossible when you are someone of of 10 million plus subscribers when you're in that realm of of uh being almost like a a weird deity more than actual an actual person and yeah. uh that to me is as has been the defining difference is um I, i'll never go to vidcon i'm afraid of vidcon because uh, <laughs> uh i i i'm afraid of like the uh the amount of people there who are trying to find the one or two people that they love but uh, I'll go to every convention that I can. I probably do about 20 to 30 conventions a year. And uh, the reason why I go is because, you know, these fans, they they waited all day. They waited all night. They, they traveled from halfway across the globe to go meet me at this one moment. And uh, that, to me, is, is the fan that I want to remember uh, from now until I stop doing this. And... Uh, that 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 to me is the is the clear delineation of of what a YouTuber really is, and I'm I'm, I'm sure there's there's uh you know YouTubers that have different opinions or or side of you know they think I'm crazy, but that mentality doesn't change. Um, that's something that I've, I'm very proud of is that I feel like I haven't really changed since I started doing YouTube as a person, and when success really hits anyone, whether you're 12 or or 50. Uh, it changes a lot about who you are, and uh, I've had a pretty low bar set for me the whole time, and I've just been trying to reach above it every single time that I can, and that's kind of how I viewed uh, how I've really done everything in YouTube. I hope that wasn't a long... No, no, <laughs> no, 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 need, no need for it the makes apologetic. Sense too. That's great, yeah. I remember... Uh... Reading this is like back in like 2011 or 12, but like Freddie Wong said, I think like something almost like similar to that, where it's like there are these viral things that pop up and it's just like it'll come and go, but like the good YouTubers are the ones that are able to build an audience and they like they have you know they just make a content and uh and I've even I've been to like you and Satchel filling out like a convention hall, like that's crazy, like it's pretty wild. There's nothing quite like um, Satchel and I. A few years ago, we we did a convention called Indie Popcon, and uh, that year at the convention, a lot of my YouTube friends didn't show up, and we were kind of the ones that that were the headliners, if you will, in the YouTube side. 
And uh, there was an auditorium that that probably sat like you know five thousand people. And uh, I looked down to the audience and I was like, man, everyone's really excited for the for the group right now that's on stage. And uh, we walked out there and the audience just moved forward and took over the rest of the auditorium for us. And I had this moment of, <laughs> oh, my God, there's 5,000 people who want to see us on stage right now. And yeah, it was it was, it was the most exhilarating. Uh, it was so full. If you saw this place, it was like. I don't know. I felt like he could fit like a couple, like like a plane or something. You you would have like thought that we were on spot with like a bunch of chairs. You would have thought that we were unveiling the new iPhone. Like it was it was <laughs> yeah, that yeah. <laughs> that full, and uh, and 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 everyone was a part of the conversation. No one felt like they didn't understand what was going on. They didn't feel uncomfortable. It was like this whole massive room was just in unison in what was happening, and. Uh, and and everyone has a story, and everyone has a moment they love from that day, and that's the kind of stuff that I love. That's the stuff that I walk away going, this is why I love doing what I do. Um, especially because, uh, and I, I, I have to credit Andre from Black Nerd Comedy with this statement. If you want to become famous, kids, go rob a bank. Do not start a YouTube channel. It will not get you the same dividends. If you want to become rich and famous, or you want to become infamous and have a big career, you you have better luck doing an awful crime than you do starting a YouTube channel because it is not for everyone. It is not easy. It's very hard to do, especially in 2018. And it's something that uh, discipline and hard work almost don't even matter anymore. It's really about, again, learning the economic tides of... of what is the current YouTube space? Mm-hmm. Tide. I get it. Good pun. Yep. Um, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> We've come full circle. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I, I I would be remiss if I didn't ask you both about um uh, the dating sim you guys were in from a fan. <laughs> mm. I re- mm. I've never asked Satchel about this, and I really want to <laughs> pick your oh brains about. <laughs> Oh you, my goodness! You know what? Um, it's a it's a free game, so you'll spend no money on it. Um, I definitely recommend downloading it. Um, it's 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 a wild ride. It's awesome. Um, like <laughs> a fan made a game for you guys, but it's also like I just I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yep, <laughs> and the experience so, of playing. It. Ha- have have you played it or seen it at all? Or, I've or seen know anything it. About I have it? not played it yet. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, the. Asagao Academy Normal Boots Club was created by uh, one of our Normal Boots members' wife, um, uh, uh, Peanut Butter Gamer's wife, uh, Danny. She came up with this idea for a dating sim based off of um, us, and we all thought that was kind of crazy, uh, but we started seeing kind of the early artwork and the idea behind it and immediately all of us were like, this is so stupid. Like who (laughs) is going to want to play this? And then we all had this moment of, I want to play this. Like (laughs) 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 all in use. We were like, we, we, I want to play this. And so P um, P much. Yeah, it was, it was kickstarted. Uh, I think the goal was 20,000 and they hit 30,000 and, uh, it was helmed by Kara uh, and and Danny and and 
they put their heart and souls into this project and we we didn't know what to expect we just saw the the early trailer and we're like this looks awesome mm-hmm. especially because I don't know about you, Satchel, but I know nothing about the dating sim genre on on nothing online. At all. I I, no. I saw Dodger stream one or two and was like, this seems like a subculture of a subculture of a subculture. I'll never see it again. And lo it and is... behold, they all started kind of popping up out of nowhere. In the especially past, after Asagao. The, pa- <laughs> the past three years, there's been this massive boom of of dating sim and uh, of dating sim games, and all of them are. Very unique, very different, and and you know, there's even one about you know, how to a boyfriend is about dating pigeons. Like there's this crazy uh, culture behind it that I've never understood, and I didn't understand it until I played Asagao Academy. And in Asagao Academy, uh, it's basically a private school in Japan uh, where uh, Normal Boots, which is our, our collective of, of YouTube creators um, that Satchel and I are a part of, uh, we are like the cool kids. Of, of of the school. And uh, there's a rival group called Hidden Block, which is another YouTube collective um, that we've all known for years and have worked with, and, and I've coached a lot of those guys personally. And um, there's just kind of like this, this choose-your-own dating sim aspect where you can choose who you want to date from Normal Boots based on your early interactions with them. And... Uh, you know, there's I think there's what there's nine 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 to nine or twelve nine between nine to twelve different possible routes you can you can go through, and in terms of who you date and who you, and and the path that you choose, and there's several good endings, there's bad endings, there's neutral endings, um, there's like weird endings, and the craziest thing about this game that and the reason why I have kind of fallen in love with it is that um, it even though these are caricatures of ourselves. Um, the way that Danny and, and Kara have written the dialogue and the plots, it seems like this is something that we would all do and say if we were all went to high school together. And that's the creepiest part because <laughs> you're sitting here reading what you, what you're sitting there reading and acting out and seeing what someone else thinks of you as a person. And mm. it's, it's, it's scary how real it is because, you're just like that's it's exactly something that Satchel would say. It's exactly something that Gerard would say. And mm. that's kind of what like made I, I felt like when the game came out, we all had this unspoken um bond kind of increase with us. Especially because we don't spend that much time together. And the game, at least for me, made me feel like uh, I had that connection again um with it, these content. It felt creators. like somehow, um I don't know who who did the who was head of writing? Was it Kara? Kara, Kara, I, I, and Danny were the ones I, that that were in charge of of writing as well as like the the plots, if you will. Yeah, and I felt like somehow um, I did my route because I was very curious, right? And <laughs> and also like I found that they somehow they I, I mean I guess really just through the minor interactions that we had like at conventions and. Um, our YouTube videos, they captured a particular essence that made it feel eerily like we were uh, friends in this fictional story. Um, and I almost wonder if, you know, part of its popularity is because people connected in that same way. Like, they connected to whatever sort of intangible essence um, that they might have gotten by watching all of us babble in our respective internet spaces. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um 
it was it was I think that part was probably like the coolest part of of the play given I don't and I assume you don't play too many um dating sims me personally no I I, it was it was the first it was the first and only I played and uh and well it was weird because there was what, what was that I said same, but I, I did play Dream Daddy, but that came after. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, there was just this uh, between between Danny and Kara and how they how they wrote these plots. Um, there, the, you know, I, I asked Kara like, "How did you know everyone so well?" And she kind of looked at me and was like, "Because uh, I watched your videos. I watched all your guys' videos, and we we that was like the crux of our our plot was how do we make people." Um, who don't know you guys see you from a personal level and, you know, all they really need to do was just watch our content until they understood us. And that's something that, um, you never really find with people. Like when you go to these conventions, you, you don't really expect someone to walk up and be like, I know who you are. Like you, you just don't expect the interaction. And, uh, yeah. somehow, somehow they took that and made it a video game. And it, uh, the, the craziest thing that I think is very, um, unspoken or, or really under underappreciated is the fandom. The Asagawa Academy fandom that exists is crazy. You have people dressing up as the main character, uh, people dressing up as the rival group hidden block, uh, people dressing up as us. Um, there's like, there's, there's fan fictions and, and spinoff groups. And, and the game's two and a half years old at this point. It's, it's a free game. And yet sure enough, at every convention I go to or, or every event, I always see someone cosplaying as the main character and the best friend. And there's this unspoken thing that everyone's like, who's, who's that character? And no one would know unless you play the game. And yeah. it's, it's, it's crazy because you, you know, you'll be watching cosplay blogs or, or, or a website do press coverage for, for an event. And they always, that character, Hana always shows up in, in, in the, the photo junket. It's crazy. Every time. That's nuts. That's amazing. Yeah, it's. A, I also think it's just like a testament, I guess, of like how strongly you come across, or like how real or honest you come across in your videos, and I think that resonates with people. Hence, them loving the game. And uh, I just remember when it came out, like it definitely had like press, and tons of people were talking about. it. I was like, this is amazing, like, <laughs> like a video game about YouTubers. No, that's uh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's it's definitely. Again, if if you if you like any of the content creators from a personal level or professional level, uh, I definitely ran, recommend uh, playing at least one of the routes and and just kind of seeing how it all unfolds. Because from the music, from the plot, from the words, uh, there there's just there there's this nice cohesive package here of a game, and it's free because uh, the fans the fans kickstarted it, and uh, it's just it's it's free right now. I think they've had over. Almost almost half a million downloads. I could be could be uh, could be talking uh, yeah, on my butt, I think but so. I th- yeah, wow. But yeah, I definitely recommend it. It's a trip. <laughs> awesome. It's wild. Sweet. Cool. Well, I'm 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 set on questions. You you good? Yeah. Sure. It's been a uh, oh, really my great. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, I didn't come off as too much of an egomaniac. I hope. I hope. Just a uh, little bit. It's fine. Dude, you're <laughs> fine. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're totally fine. Thanks so much for joining us. Is there anything you're currently working on that you'd like to share? Um, uh, right now I would say uh, 
Big Bad Bosses is is my boy band that uh, I am in. It's uh, me, Satchel, Alex Fasciani, and uh, Nate Wants to Battle. We have a boy band that's called Big Bad Bosses. It's it stars uh, uh, <laughs> without without copyright infringement. It stars Bowser, Ganondorf, Sephiroth, and Doctor Robotnik in or a boy like band. Them. Something they're and it's <laughs> good and. Uh, the uh, the music is produced by Jake Kaufman, the guy who did the music for Shovel Knight and OKKO OK and all kinds of, of of bigger video game projects as well. Tales. We yeah, we are working on album two later on this year, as well as a music video to announce our vinyl, which is coming out uh, in in April of this year. So if you like video game music and you like boy bands and you like video game villains, uh, it is a crazy ride that I promise you will love. So check us out. It's gonna turn into like Beatlemania, right? That that'd be sick. I mean, that's the <laughs> that's what we're trying to do. <laughs> well, awesome, Gerard. I yeah, I like love your videos, and uh, I just like being able to see like how someone can enjoy a game in a, in a ton of different ways. Like, I'm not inclined to 100% a game, but like a game that I like, uh, and then you happen to like for a totally different reason. I think that's like a really cool sort of message in your videos. So this is really awesome, man. No, thank you for having me, and that means a lot, especially because uh, I, I never know who's watching or, or what they actually think of my content until they tell me. So I really appreciate the kind words. There's my one-sentence review. Here you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, man. All right, take care. See ya. Up next, Paul Tassi and Eric Kane talk about the cost of video games and whether or not a $60 price tag should go up with inflation. But first, a quick break. This podcast is brought to you by Amica Auto Home and Life Insurance. When you call Amica, you can expect a different experience because Amica is all about customer service that goes above and beyond the ordinary. You always get the help you need when you call Amica. Visit meetamica.com slash Forbes today. And this year, the office cubicle turns 50 years old. It hails from an age when work was done on typewriters and smoking at your desk was the norm. Today, employees are expecting more from their workspace. They want flexible and active spaces where they can collaborate and feel energized. Veridesk Active Workspace solutions make it easy to encourage more movement to any workday. Being more active at work, like standing more and sitting less, can help improve your health, boost energy, and increase productivity. Veridesk has a variety of desk solutions that replace traditional office setups, require little to no assembly, and are ready to use in minutes. Plus, Veridesk products are made from commercial-grade materials meant to last a lifetime. They're easy to move or reconfigure as businesses change and grow. You can try Veridesk risk-free for 30 days with free shipping and free returns if you're not satisfied. See it for yourself at Veridesk.com. That's V-A-R-I-Desk.com. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Garnishing your ham with pineapple? Pair it with a delicious Chardonnay to make their taste buds swirl. Deviled eggs are even better when paired with a light, dry wine like a bubbly Prosecco or a Pinot Grigio. For me, nothing beats recommending a great wine. And with such an extensive selection, I can help you find the perfect one in your budget. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine & More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! Hi, I'm Eric Kane. And I'm Paul Tassi. Uh, we're going to talk about sort of a controversial topic in the video game industry, uh, which is the the price of video games, which is, has been capped at $59.99 basically for, gosh, how long? At least, I don't know, 15 years? I don't, something like that. It used to be 50 and then it went up another 10 
but then just stopped. <laughs> yeah, I I feel like you know I, when, as a kid I remember games costing maybe even like forty dollars, but and then of course that changes with with PC games and things like that. But but g- generally speaking, a game on the Xbox One, the PlayStation Four, uh, it's going to cost you sixty dollars. And there's a debate going on as to whether it should cost more. Uh, and one of the reasons for this debate is that we've seen a lot of different uh, ways for game publishers to monetize games. So, for instance, DLC, microtransactions, loot boxes, all these ways to, to get sort of uh, ongoing revenue streams to sort of bolster that basic uh, $60 cost. So on the one hand, people are saying, well, maybe games should be more expensive, and then they wouldn't have to do all of these extra revenue streams. And on the other hand, people say, that's crazy. Uh, you know, video games make tons and tons of money already. Uh, so so what's, what is your take here? I do agree that technically video games should be more expensive. I mean, every other kind of form of media, whether it's your cable bill or movie tickets, have slowly kind of inched up in price. So realistically, games should probably now be about 70 or $80. Uh, that said, even though that might be what should happen, it's it's kind of a question of will it and like would the market be able to adjust to kind of that massive of a swing so quickly where it's it's for all the other industries, it's been kind of a slow, uh, you know, ramp up where everything costs, you know, a dollar or two more a year. And, and in the end, you're paying double what you were a while ago. But with games, since there has been no ramp up like that at all, kind of a, a very sudden shift like that would be disruptive to the point where it might hurt more than it would help, even if it, it technically is, you know, the quote unquote right thing to do. Yeah. It would be hard to even implement a price change, honestly, because where's that going to come from? Uh, from an individual publisher, I suppose, because if, if, if Sony were, was to say, you know, now these games are, we want to charge more for our games, then you'd have the competitors saying, well, we charge less, you know, and, you know, if Activision said, well, now Call of Duty is going to cost seventy nine ninety nine for base the base game, well, then EA could say, well, our games cost less. So it's a difficult thing. I, I'm not sure how the price even uh, increased as much as it has, but it, it would be difficult to implement. Um, and the other thing is that I just don't see those publishers walking back their other revenue streams. So I don't. I don't think if if the price of a game went up to seventy or eighty dollars, I don't. I don't think that suddenly Activision would take loot boxes out of Call of Duty. Yeah, I agree, and that's kind of the other side of the coin. Where even even if you had a swing like this, it at this point the way the industry has kind of developed itself, it is almost impossible for these developers to walk away from these kind of money making vehicles. And like, yeah, we're seeing pushback and and stuff from fans and, and things now, but. There's almost no situation I can visualize where just flat out all of the stuff goes away, where there's kind of like an, uh, a massive global rejection of these practices, where in something like movies, you kind of saw that with 3D a little bit, where, where uh, everything, every blockbuster was coming out in 3D, and like every showtime was in 3D for at least you know a good amount of time. But then over time, well, there are still 3D movies now, it's not really like the big kind of surge that it was and it, and it went away where I don't think you're going to see that same kind of thing happen with video games and you're right. not just going to stop selling DLC or stop having loot boxes kind of no matter what the price of admission is and I mean my theory is almost that we might see games just start to get cheaper 
uh, overall, and that might sound goofy considering the whole premise of this was was that game prices should maybe go up. Um, but it, it's kind of we're already seeing the seeds of this be planted, where uh, you know you, you could theoretically see the industry moving toward you know an Xbox Game Pass model where. Mm-hmm. It's ten dollars a month, and you're getting access to these these games kind of upfront, and the money is made from kind of ongoing revenue streams instead. And it is weird to imagine the entire industry being, you know, a free to play model. But hey, people don't buy DVDs anymore either, really. So, right, <laughs> I don't know and, if it's impossible. You know, and we're seeing with with something like Netflix, where major motion pictures are released just on Netflix, skipping the theater altogether. So it's yeah it's I I could see the 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 tricky thing there is kind of like what we're seeing in TV where there's uh you know there's Netflix and then there's Hulu, Amazon Prime Video, CBS All Access, uh whatever Disney comes up with for their uh their streaming service and on and on and on and you know that on top of like well Showtime, Stars, Cinemax, HBO it becomes a whole lot of subscriptions and that's not feasible for most people to subscribe to that many different services. And that's, you know, if the games industry moves that way and we have an Xbox pass and we have the EA early access thing, and we've got, you know, the, whatever Sony comes out with, plus you're playing for the online access with Xbox live or, or uh, PlayStation network. Um, they got to cut that out one of these days with the, I mean, <laughs> Because <laughs> no other it's service the kind of layers like oh just to even access the internet on this device yeah. you need to pay like it this is the only industry that does that and it's essentially free money so it's hard to see how it would go away but it's kind of the biggest ripoff it's a huge <laughs> there ripoff. there is right yeah. now and, and I remember, I remember when Sony and Nintendo stuff. both had the free service mm-hmm. and everyone's like oh well maybe Microsoft will convert and have a free service too and <laughs> what happened everyone <laughs> else just got paid services instead so. Yeah. <laughs> Not exactly. quite the same. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There was, you know, and and it, it, that's where it becomes tricky, though. Like, how how can you honestly, you know, let's if you're already paying Microsoft for that uh, Xbox Live Gold, and then you're also having to pay Microsoft for Xbox Games Pass, I, I know it's, it just becomes. But I, I don't think you're wrong. I mean, I think we are going to see more and more of this kind of subscription type service. Well, the counterpoint uh, is that like you have access to a lot more games total. So instead of having to pay 40 to $60 for all these games, you have a hundred games or 200 games, or 300 mm-hmm. games. And it feels more valuable in that sense. Like even if those weren't games you may have played otherwise, it, it still feels like you're getting value. You know what I mean? Right. And I yeah. can't say that would remain true if you had to pay a subscription pass for every single publisher. But to me, that seems more likely now than suddenly you know, the game industry all just agreeing to raise prices by 20 bucks or something. And like, honestly, I, I we're, we're seeing a race in the other direction where you have just a lot like Overwatch or PUBG or games that are just cheaper and still going to give you hundreds and hundreds of hours of entertainment. And I, I feel like the $60 box copy at launch is getting a lot harder to, you know, remain appealing. And like, even, even with those, you can still get them at GameStop for you know 40 50 bucks a week after launch. So even that $60 price point is not necessarily super firm for yeah. most people. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, and and of course we've seen the rise in free to play. Um both in PC and console and also in mobile where, you know, launching a premium paid game is pretty rare now. Uh and the big money makers are typically 
the big free to play games. I mean, Nintendo has been in the mobile business, Nintendo, yeah. and yeah, their their best seller or their best revenue uh, has been from uh, the Fire Emblem Heroes, which is a gotcha game. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that we're going to see you know, in it, not the same degree as mobile necessarily, but I think you're right. I think games are actually going to continue to get cheaper, but have more and more and more different kinds of ways to get your money from you. <laughs> well, mobile is important though, regardless, because now we have kind of a generation being raised on mobile. <laughs> and so they're coming to expect, you know, that kind of model where it's, everything is free or cheap. And like, yeah, maybe you'll get addicted to it and spend hundreds of dollars on microtransactions, but at least to play it initially, it's free. And like, you you just said Nintendo, like even Nintendo couldn't convince, you know, more than a fraction of mobile users to pay $10 for a really good Mario game. (laughs) And like, if they can't do that with that kind of game at that price, it's like kind of what hope does anyone have in that industry? So I, I feel we're already seeing mobile trends move over into, you know, core gaming with loot boxes and stuff. So it's hard to see that kind of slowing down anytime soon. So I, I feel like that's only going to amplify. Yeah, no. And that's, that's an interesting point. And I think that's something that when people are arguing, well, the, you know, games should, should raise the price of games should go up with inflation. They're just, they're really missing the realities of kind of where, where this industry is headed. And, and it really does make sense because I think that we've seen, you know, Blizzard and Activision and, and various other companies make an enormous amount of money from these other these other services, and and the reason that okay I, I don't particularly care for loot boxes because I think they're very exploitative and manipulative and and I, I think that they're bad for the industry, but I do understand like rather than charging everyone more for a game, you're just charging people who want to pay that money that extra money, you know you don't have to buy the season pass, you don't have to buy loot boxes, you don't have to buy the you know, the outfits and the microtransaction things in games like Assassin's Creed Origins. You don't have to do any of that. And for the, you know, for the average gamer, maybe they, they don't want to or they can't afford to. Um, yeah, so but at the, the same time... The game is sustained by the whales, essentially. Right. And then, and then to me, there's, you know, that's... there's That brings up some sort of ethical issues, I think, which is, you know, if, if you have something like loot boxes that really appeals to people who are more likely to get addicted to opening loot boxes who are spending way too much money on these items, these usually cosmetic items or buffs or things like that. Like how, you know, that, that feels a little icky in a way, you know, you, it's kind of goes back to that. You wrote a post a few years ago saying I spent 600 something dollars on Hearthstone and uh, sure you spent <laughs> a lot uh, more double stuff. that now at least. Probably. <laughs> and to me, it's like, wow, that's, crazy but you know i've spent money on loot boxes in certain games and 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 it's a weird thing because it's really not worth spending the money on it's just not worth it no game is worth that you much don't realize money. that at the time right you don't <laughs> it's an well i mean people like to imagine that when a game is you know quote unquote supported by whales that's like a bored billionaire like with a monocle who's just like you know tossing <laughs> money at his phone but like well that's, well, yeah, that's, that's how you, well that's you know? a certain percentage <laughs> Of people, the vast majority are probably just normal people who are just spending way m- more than they should <laughs> on this stuff. Like I, I would say, probably at least ninety percent of whales are people that should clearly be using their money for better, <laughs> yes. better things instead yes. of just having just so much extra money you can just you know throw it around, spend ten k a month on farm bill or whatever. So <laughs> it is. You, you're right. It is based on kind of an icky premise, and if all games start to move into that, and like if you know, if Destiny or if Call of Duty has to be supported 
solely by kind of massive whales. A, I don't even know if that'll work because right. <laughs> there are only so many. And like, if every game adopts that model, there are only so many whales to go around. And I, I even said this with loot boxes recently, where I'm I find myself buying less loot boxes across more games now and just focusing on maybe one one or two games that I like, okay, maybe I'm like pretty invested in this. I'll, I'll keep buying stuff. But I, anytime a new game launches and it inevitably has loot boxes, I'm pretty much just like not going there now, like at all. And I'm even the type of person who, as you said, <laughs> is, is prone to this kind of thing, but there are just too, it's overloaded. There's too many options now where I'm just not gonna, you know, pay in shadow of war or, you know, call of duty or whatever. It's, if I am going to spend stupid gaming money somewhere, it's going to be on one or two titles I'm, like, super dedicated to, not mm-hmm. I'm going to spend, you know, $100 on loot boxes on every new game that comes out. Well, that's sort of the the problem with the, the games-as-a-service model. Like, that's been really hyped, and analysts really like it, and, and obviously publishers are moving. You know, we see something like Anthem coming from EA and BioWare. It looks much more like a Destiny than, like, a Mass Effect, right? And that's because they have this idea that they can get you know, this ongoing revenue stream from whales and just from, and not even necessarily just whales, but, you know, from a, an engaged community that sticks around with that game for two years or three years and buys the expansions and, pay, you know, and the, the loot boxes and whatever else. But there's only, I mean, it's, it's, it goes back to that idea of there's only so many subscription services you can subscribe to. And there's only, like, there's only so much you can play all these games that are living, ongoing games. You know, and that's that's something that kind of hit the MMO scene. I feel like they, there was just too many MMOs for people to keep playing all of them, whether they were subscription or free to play. Like it's just too much of an investment in both time and cash. So yeah, I don't know. True. And we're seeing. I think we're seeing that because I, I, I have to believe that that'll happen with kind of Destiny and the Division, and then Anthem, and then Borderlands. Like even though those aren't like true MMOs, it is very similar, and they will require large amounts of time and potentially large amounts of money for, for loot boxes and what have you. So it's, I feel like we're going to run into that again. Yeah. If if we aren't already. (laughs) And then on the flip side of things, you have, you know, the indie scene and a lot of these smaller games coming out for quite a bit less money and they're not games of service and they don't have loot boxes. I feel like the popularity of game like Stardew Valley on the switch really shows that there is a, a great market for, for cheaper, smaller games that don't require, uh, you know, all this extra stuff, all this extra time, all this extra uh, money. So yeah, I, that's, I think that's we'll appealing that. now. That's more appealing now than ever because so yeah. few, you know, other bigger games are like that now where you can just, you know, spend the money, pick it up, play, put it down, and then, like, not be nagged to go back to it to... <laughs> you know, keep paying it infinitely or, you know, putting thousands of hours into something. Like, there's something nice about kind of more compact, one-time-use games that mm-hmm. is becoming almost a little nostalgic, to be honest, because there just aren't nearly as many of those as there used to be. And there's also the big missing, like, mid-tier game, the double A, you know, uh, which is, you know, something that would be a little more extensive than a little indie game, but not not such a huge... I mean, I guess we saw that kind of with Hellblade. I, I knew you were going to say Hellblade. Like, every, anytime I hear Double A, the right. only game I can think of is Hellblade. It's, it's <laughs> so, pretty rare, right? I mean, yeah, I guess it's, I think we see some... Happens. We see some out of Eastern Europe, like, for, or, or like France, like Focus Home and uh, Interactive has some double... I would say call them Double A games. And, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, I guess kind of with something like... Some, some of the episodic stuff that we've seen, I would say maybe fits into there also. Like yeah, Telltale or yeah, um, Don't Nod. 
but but there's 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 still a pretty there's not very many, but I think it's a great market that is that really has a lot of room for growth, and I think that we'll see more of that also. Um, in that you know you can get a forty dollar game. And yeah, I, I just don't think we're we're never going to go above the sixty cap. I just don't think that's a realistic. I, I think very few people are really taking that position. Like I know the premise of this is like I was supposed to argue <laughs> in favor of that, but it's almost kind of indefensible, and it's yeah like. The overall cost of games just is going up because of all these extra things, but I, I doubt that the form that will take is in kind of a flat sticker upgrade. Like it's it's too late; it wouldn't work in the current industry, and it would probably just do more harm than good. So, you know, I I, I wonder if anyone who wants to do that. But <laughs> yeah, I think if anyone could, and it's an interesting—I don't know—as as a thought experiment, it's interesting, anyways. But I think that maybe Sony could do that on their first-party uh, stuff, like The Last of Us Two. Or God of, you know, not not now. Obviously, they're not going to do it, but they could theoretically say our big single player games are going to cost more now. You know, it's these are you know these are extremely expensive games to make. We want to keep making them, but in order to do so, we're going to charge this much money for the base game. And I I think they might be able to get away with it just because they have such a large market share and they have such a passionate following. But it certainly would it would be hugely controversial. Yeah, would it would it would it be worth <laughs> the yeah. firestorm that would come with you know whatever game they tried that on first if they did it with like God of War or something like that's all anyone would talk about until the release mm-hmm. of the game. <laughs> so I mean, they're I guess you could say they kind of have done this with season passes and like that just flat out kind of made games cost eighty to a hundred dollars with the season passes. It was just the the rest of the content comes later. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and you know what else that did was it took a – it made people less likely to trade their game in right away. And, yeah. and it, so that took a bite out of the used games market. And I think also what we've seen with the Xbox games, Game Pass is we're seeing another I, – I, I still want to write an article about how Microsoft finally figured out how to start killing the used games business. Because, you know, Microsoft wanted to do that with the Xbox One in the beginning, where they wanted to kind of lock down your game to your machine so you couldn't trade in, trade in games, you know? That was a and poor they, way to do that, but yeah. It was a very blunt, like, blunt force way of, like, trying to destroy the used games industry. But yeah. something like Games Pass could really destroy the used games business and games sure, retail yeah. in general. I've already um, heard of retailers say they're not going to carry Xbox products now. But yeah, I saw that too. That's that says to me they are on the verge of, of something you know pretty significant, yeah. whether whether. And that's bad, another but. thing about this the whole pricing issue is that yes, inflation has an, impacted the way that uh, you know how much a game should cost theoretically, but also the the way we deliver content now has changed. You know, more and more people are buying digital content, and that costs virtually nothing. To that's why well, I mean that's digital revenue is why video games stock is just soaring all over the place because everyone's digital revenue is just going way up and that's way better than physical copies sold revenue going up because they're getting a hundred percent of that pie so yeah (laughs) everything seems to be working out great for publishers for the most part not so much players not so much the people building the games and their working conditions but (laughs) yeah i think that that really you know i think maybe in the future of this podcast we should talk more about um about conditions on the ground for for people in the industry because oh yeah you know in the the game industry is notoriously bad for so many reasons including you know crunch time for developers no royalties paid to the various creative people working on the games uh 
tax sheltering overseas and just all the list goes on and on and on. And, uh, you know, I think, I think that deserves more spotlight because it's not good. It's not, I don't think it's a healthy, uh, place for the industry to be at. Yeah, absolutely. Anyways, uh, yeah, so video games should get cheaper, not more expensive, and it'll be interesting to see how that happens. Uh, Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you guys next week. See ya. That's it for this episode of World. Thanks for listening. I'm Matt Perez. And I'm Satchel Drakes. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please reach us at overworld at podcast1. That's O-N-E dot com. And also you can reach us on Twitter. My handle is at Satchel Drakes. That's Satchel like a bag with an extra L. And mine is Matt Ryan Perez. Thanks for listening. Take care. Hey, this is Jordan Harbinger. I used to host the Art of Charm podcast, but now it's time for something new. The Jordan Harbinger Show. Did you know you can be entertained and actually get a boost in your life at the same time? On this show, we dig into the superpowers of the world's most interesting thinkers and top talents. Then we deliver them to you right into your ears. But I get it. We're not all superheroes. That's why we give you their blueprint so you can live what you listen. After a thousand interviews, learning five languages, and getting arrested in a country that doesn't even exist anymore, I'm now more ready than ever to introduce you to The Jordan Harbinger Show. Listen free to The Jordan Harbinger Show, available on Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and the Podcast One app. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine and More. Every bunny loves honey glazed carrots, a great side dish for your springtime celebration, and a delicious compliment to a sweet, bright Moscato. Your Bloody Mary bar will be the talk of brunch with the vodka I'm stalking. Pile those toppings sky high. Serving lamb this season? Try it with a bold Cabernet from the trendy Paso Robles region. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine and More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.